It's October 5th, 2023. Hi there. Welcome to episode 289 of Rook. There's no mystery in what happened to Armita. It's another horrific story, but it's not a stretch to imagine what happened to Armita. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Hello to you from Toronto. Salam dustanazis. Durud bashama. There's no mystery in what happened to young Armita Gerovand. Go ahead, wait for more details, debate the latest particularities, scroll through all the armchair accounts, but let's be honest, for people of Iranian descent around the world, there's no mystery in what happened to Armita. Without the iron-fisted repression of this current Iranian theocracy, all of us would be spared the horror of another unforgivable atrocity. What we do know is that there is a teenage kid lying in a coma just outside of Tehran. We know that she's been in that coma for the last four days since sustaining a head injury in an incident in a Tehran subway station that involved the hijab police. In fact, by the time you hear this essay, her condition may have changed and the pot will have been stirred. Maybe, most tragically, the worst may have occurred. But we really don't need to pretend we haven't watched this movie before. There's no mystery in what happened to Armita. You see, some will tell us that we should wait before making any presumptions about who or what is to blame. Some are saying we should hear what the authorities have to say in Iran before we light a flame. Really though? With all the transparency they showed after they shot down Flight 752? What is it with some in the diaspora that seemingly want to keep giving this tyrannical regime more chances? Their own interests, perhaps? Hell, some are already celebrating a developing USA-Iran relationship thaw. Countdown to the New York Times declaring an end to the regime's latest draconian hijab law. And these tragedies involving young women and men become fodder for social media heartbreak porn. Pundits pour over the details and stats like they're watching a football game. And yet, the lyrics may be different this time, but the song remains the same. There's no mystery in what happened to Armita. Not after hundreds of innocent Iranians have been stolen from us in this year alone. Not after teenagers have taken their own lives as their despair and dismay has grown. Not after the executions of young men who were simply exercising their right to speech. Not after thousands have been thrown into prison and been tortured and traumatized. There's no mystery in what happened to Armita. Word is her mother has now been arrested for wanting to see her comatose child. You couldn't write this stuff in a script without being accused of making the evil characters too wild. Say her name, Armita Gerovand. And no matter what happens, remember her as another young person who has suffered the consequences of historic and inexcusable lines that have been drawn by an oppressive regime who will eventually be overthrown by the good people of Iran. Coming up, a new edition of Rook, including a feature interview with Iranian-American aviator hero Captain Christopher Behnam in the Rook studio about his brand new book coming out soon. Plus, Pega is here with the Rook Roundup and Issues of the Week. This is Rook, episode 289. There is no mystery in what happened to Armita.
just walked in the studio. Hello there. Hello. Welcome, everybody listening uh, around the world. Hope you're doing well wherever you are listening to us from around the world. I'm Gian. This is Rook, episode 289. Uh, it's been a while since I... Well, it hasn't been that long, actually. I did a... For the first show of this season, I did an essay. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's Smart Pega. Yes. Smart Pega Ganji. <laughs> SPG. See, nobody likes the new SPG. Well, I said SPG, and you told me somebody at an event stopped you yeah. and said, "Like, why are you? Why did you?" They, she unchanged your name, but it's the same name. I, I get it's that. Smart Pega. <laughs> it's just with the you know. With my full name. It sounds more like a, a petroleum brand now. SPG. Because <laughs> that's exactly yeah. what I want to go for. Anyway, you know, uh, this uh, I um, doing a, an opening essay like that. If you, mm-hmm. it reminds me of. Uh, this time last year. Yes. And I, in some ways, we never want to neglect what's going on in Iran, nor do we not believe that this is an ongoing, you know, uh, uprising, etc. Mm-hmm. But in some ways, I've been kind of thinking, okay, you know, let's do some shows where we're not jumping into the... Uh, I, I, personally, I don't think it's that political to say, don't kill kids, you right. know, but... but, uh, but People do think this is political yes. when you say something about Iran and the regime and the kid. And, uh, but I can't, how can you not say something mm-hmm. about this? How do you feel when you, or how did you feel this week when you heard the news of Armita? I mean, at first I was really, really sad. I mean, that's, I think, the first emotion when you hear any sort of news about young kids. I mean, she's a kid, she's 16. Yes. Um, being attacked and now ending up in a coma and, and all of that. But that sadness quickly turned into anger again, which is, I think, what's been happening over the course of the last year frequently is this emotional shock and sadness and then anger at the ongoing situation and the, you know, the fact that the Islamic Republic is just barbaric yeah. more than anything else. It's remarkably um, repetitive, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's 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 almost to the, to the note, yeah. the same song that was played with with uh, Masa Amini, you know, a year ago. And yeah, I mean, it's how, again, how can you not, and and we don't even know exactly where this is going. Mm -hmm. I was a little, as you know, I was a little tentative about, do I do this essay? Mm -hmm. Talk about something that that hasn't, Born itself out to fruition in terms of what what's going to happen with poor Armita, et cetera, or family. But I, I have to say, you, when I go on these social media uh, places, and they're still, I find that they tend to be, they don't tend to be inside Iran. They tend to be uh, uh, Iranian-American, usually yeah. pundits kind of going, uh, everybody, you know, don't get too excised about this. Let's see what... Uh, Let's see what's going on. Let's hear. Maybe it wasn't the regime's fault in this case. And it's just like, come on, God. man. I mean, I, this is like a, you know, let's not be ridiculous. You know? I mean, all of it is just right out of their playbook. Like we just heard of, you know, her poor mother's been arrested just a couple of hours ago. It, it's, you know, the, it's, it's like you said, it's just repetitive. Well, remember it, with Mass right Harmony, it was, it was for the first few days, it was like, well, we don't know what happened. The, I mean, the, the, the authorities. Yes, well, of oh, course. We don't know. Uh, yeah. She's got a heart condition. Like, it was just like, you know, lie anything, right? Lie, yeah, 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 yeah. And this in this case, apparently, we're supposed to believe that somebody, a 16-year-old healthy kid, just like, you know, oh, no, fell did, down and hit their head or something. Didn't right? you hear they have a new excuse? No. Uh, she didn't eat breakfast. Right. So she fainted. Right, right, that, right. That's right. the new one. Right, and ended up in a coma. Yes, yeah, yeah, because that's what happens if you don't have breakfast. Yeah, yeah. Um, this show, we have Captain Behnam mm-hmm. coming now. Captain Christopher Borzu Behnam yes. <laughs> has been on our program before. We had a feature interview with him a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. He is the 
aviator hero pilot. He was the pilot who was flying the United Airlines flight. I think it was 1175 uh, um, about four or five years ago. Mm -hmm. Saved over 380 lives by piloting this plane to safety despite the engines cutting out, etc. Uh, this time, though, first of all, he's in the studio. I'm excited yes. about that. And he's got an autobiography, his book coming out in a couple of months. We got an advanced copy of it. I've read it. It's pretty gripping stuff. I mean, you know, he, we know him as this pilot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, of course, he's had a, and a pilot who had, in fact, I want to ask him. I mean, he's so defined by this incident now, by this uh, heroic incident right. that, uh, you know, uh, flying that plane. But. He, this happened, I guess he would have been four or five years in his 60s already, mm -hmm. you know, so he's lived a life before that. And he has quite a life story, uh, including his father, who was quite political and was in jail for many wow. years in Iran, both before the Islamic Revolution and then after the Islamic Revolution. Under Khomeini, he was in the Evian for many years. Mm -hmm. and So he's written this all now in this life story, as, w as well as his own brushes with death. And um, it's quite a book. It's quite a conversation. Captain Behnam here in the Rook studio. You don't want to miss it. Always an interesting guy, has a lot of opinions, cares deeply about what's happening yes. in Iran, despite the fact that he's been living in the States for many years. So he will be joining us in the Rook studio uh, coming up. Last week, um, a few days ago, we had a Rook social, mm -hmm. and uh, which is, a, we had an event, and a bunch of people came uh, out and uh, that we invited. And um, it was to mark, and I just want to mention this in the program, um, we have surpassed 15 million streams yes. of our content across our platforms. Mm -hmm. um, so that's not bad. Yeah, of right? course. Very proud of that. I mean, you know, it's not Kendall Jenner territory. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but are for we comparing a, Rook but to Kendall for Jenner? A, for a, for a little, you know, uh, English um, podcast network, the digital network mm -hmm. that is talking about Iranian issues, identity, the diaspora conversations with Iranians. Uh, honestly, I'm very proud to, yes. to, to, to see, and we've never, I mean, I say this with some sadness, we've never spent a dollar <laughs> on marketing or promoting unfortunately mm -hmm. we haven't had that kind of budget so it's all word of mouth it's grown and it's grown globally and 15 million, 15 million plus streams uh again across our platforms our, our podcast platforms tend to be our strong platforms apple and spotify and soundcloud uh but of course also youtube and Castbox and telegram and um instagram mm -hmm. so uh thank you i was thinking it's so it's so amazing that people well, before we launched Rook, mm -hmm. there were there was to me it makes a lot of sense, especially as the diaspora grows, millions of Iranians outside of Iran, second and third generation especially are going to be speaking the lingua franca of the mm -hmm. world, the, the common yes. language of the world. It's English. Makes sense that we need Iranian media in English. Absolutely. Um, but when we launched, it was like, oh, what are you doing? What is this? Who's going to listen to that? And uh, somebody says that they, uh, we had Iran International come and um, do a little report on our event mm -hmm. last week. And, and I think I said this on the event, but somebody was saying to me, uh, I don't want to say his name, but he's a well-known Washington <laughs> pundit, Iranian kind of strategist, uh, et cetera. And I remember meeting with him before I, we launched Rook. And mm -hmm. 
uh, it's about four four years ago, four and a half years ago, and telling him about the idea and everything. He was like, hey, that's great, man, but you're going to run out of guests in like 10 episodes. You know, it's a short <laughs> list. Like, who are you going to have? You know, you have Monster Brani and Abbas Milani, and then what? What do you got? You know? Here and we are, 289 episodes Not later. to mention the history series exactly. and all the other things. So talking to Persians, so we're well over 300 in terms of our, our shows. And yeah, we haven't run out of guests yet. And there's lots more to come. Uh, Captain Christopher Bannam coming up. Um, let's do the Rook Roundup. Mm-hmm. I was going to do it after him, but you're here now. And we've just been talking about Armita. Um, yes. Let's jump into it here. And what this is a weird one because it's happening in real time mm-hmm. right now right we're we've just learned about the mom being potentially arrested. being arrested yeah. what what is the latest on armita get up and and very quickly because i've just done it on the essay but mm-hmm. very quickly catch us up with what what happened well i mean unfortunately there's no update on her she's been in a coma for a couple of days and continues to be i think the latest update is just a couple hours ago her mom was arrested um now again that's not even really shocking news to anyone who's some has been following the last year or the last 40 some odd years in Iran because we know again like you said this is straight out of the Islamic Republic's playbook and a couple days ago when they did an interview with her parents we could see that that was a coerced interview you know the the parents were so distraught and you could tell that they were you know under pressure to say certain things so it comes as no surprise. There was some report that the dad got a phone call from first of all the media has been shut down on yes. this right the only it's only state media well that's what i was going to say and state media reported that the dad said i have no information i'm at work she's in a coma and Gosh. and it was just kind of like what dad Which would, father with their would, daughter yeah. in a coma would be like ah thanks a lot no nothing to report here yeah. nothing to say yeah it was very well on that telling. note um they've actually closed off the hospital so the hospital that she's staying at usually you know there's visiting hours there's other people going in and out but in fear of having information come out of the hospital they've actually closed it off there's no one allowed in or out and by the way why do you do that if somebody just fainted well that's exactly what i was gonna get at is you know there's all this theories you know out there of oh she didn't have breakfast and she was healthy and this and that well then why the hell is there no one allowed to go inside the hospital or why isn't she allowed to you know now just out of curiosity Mm -hmm. i mean do you i saw actually an iranian journalist uh, outside of iran who was very active Mm -hmm. uh, during the uprising saying i think he was tweeting or xing uh (laughs) yesterday that this is you know iran is on fire again this is going to be another Mm -hmm. precipitant of another kind of uh upswing in the uprising do you believe that that to be true i think that's going to be very hard for that to be true and the reason i say that is because we've seen and heard reports of this new um anti-hijab or anti-improper hijab or i don't know i don't even know what they're called but whatever the morality police is out to enforce this new hijab law and whatever else they've been stationed at so many different places in so many different cities across iran i mean just in tehran i think they're stationed at different subway stations things like that so the crackdown is worse than we've ever seen before and we knew this was coming with the hijab law being implemented and all of that so i think it's going to make it really really difficult to have that spark and to have people come out in the same way with respect to what else we had on the roundup, mm-hmm. there's actually a, it's one of those weeks where there's a lot going on inside Iran and outside of Iran. But you want to talk about the um, there was the woman who had a trial about not wearing mm-hmm. a hijab, and then she refused to wear the hijab for the trial, right? Yes, incredibly brave young woman. Sepide Rashno is her name. Sepide Rashno. Yes, and she was originally arrested July 16th of last year. Um, now she was, you know 
sentenced to five years. She spent about 40 days in prison. Then she was released on bail. Might I add an incredibly high bail? I think it was $27,000. So for someone to be set a bail that high, it's, you know, unheard of. Um, And of course, she was committed of the same bullshit crimes that we've talked about over the last year. But now she had another trial Which is not wearing a hijab. Which is, well, it's just, it's not just the hijab. It's the immoral, improper propaganda against the regime and this and that. On Instagram or something? Did she do Um, that She had an, she had an altercation in the subway as well, actually. So she, there was a viral video of her where she was in a yelling match right, with right, someone. Right, 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 um, yeah, yeah. And then that went viral and then uh. she was caught and so on and so forth. Um, but anyhow, so she had a trial date set just for a couple of days ago, I think it was. And um, leading up to that date, she posted a picture of herself on Instagram without a hijab wearing, you know, very modest clothing. She was wearing, I think, a blazer and a white shirt and pants, that sort of thing. And the caption she wrote, um, you know, this is how I'm going to show up to court. I'm going to defend myself against these crimes that I didn't commit Um, and I know that my family is going to be put under pressure and I know this is going to bring about all these sorts of things but the thing that matters to me the most is to talk about the truth Wow! and so this is what I'm doing and so sure enough you know that that image went out Um, they didn't allow her to attend her hearing or you know to attend court and then talk about due process right they actually went ahead without her present yeah so it was like yeah, yeah well you know Great for you, but we're still going to continue. And so I really wanted to talk about her because, I mean, the consistent bravery that we see from, you know, from so many people like Sophie, yeah. it's it's incredible. It is incredible. that it, And she's been in jail, right? She has. It's not like she doesn't know what exactly. the, the consequences are here. She's... Uh, She's going all out. Yeah, that that, that I I thought that was remarkable. Mm-hmm. Um, something about a there was a soccer oh, game. Oh God! <laughs> I mean, this is I found this interesting because we're just a couple weeks removed from Cristiano Ronaldo mm-hmm. playing for a, a a team that exists in Saudi Arabia. That's right. Going and playing in Iran, but talk about this controversy of what happened. There was a team that refused to play. Yes. So. I think there was a game for um, the Saudi team Al-Itihad, if I'm not mistaken, who was set to play against Sepahan in Esfahan. And so they show up to the field and there's this statue of Qasem Soleimani, you know, in the middle of the, or I guess in the middle of the, where the two teams are right on the pitch. And so all this like, essentially a yelling match ensues between um, the individuals who are part of the Saudi team with some of the representatives from the Iranian team and a whole bunch of other people who are there. And of course, both countries being the way they are, there's 50 people on the team who are not actually part of the team, right? right? And we know right. exactly what they're there for. So this, Were the players actually involved in no, the No, 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 not no. the players. It's uh, the, you know, the... The delegations. Exactly, yeah, yeah. the delegations. And so this happens right before the game is set to start. So it's being aired. Jesus. The people in the stands are seeing and hearing it. And so just all sorts of chaos ensues because then you've got the fans who start yelling. Hmm. And of course... You Can know, I ask a dumb question? Sure. Uh, because I don't know that much about this story. You you actually sent me the links and yeah. I didn't look more at them. Well, intentionally, I wanted mm-hmm. to ask you what, why, I'm sure it's a naive question, why is there a statue of Qasem Soleimani in the middle of a football game? So that's that's where the controversy really, really comes from. <laughs> it's like, the, uh, you know. The people who commissioned this sculpture are the same hardliners who orchestrated the torching of the Saudi embassy in Tehran um, back in 2016. But what's even their reasoning? Well, I think why, it was... Why, like, you, why would you put him there? So I don't know. We can call it coincidence or we can call it deliberate. Mm. I'm leaning towards deliberate. But I think this is a sabotage Was he on effort. the pitch? Yeah. The statue was on the... On the I don't, pitch. I, I don't get it. I mean, 
I mean, yeah, okay. it doesn't make any sense. You know, I'm sure there's a reason. I'm sure there's some sort I of... I just think it's a sabotage effort aimed at undermining the new relations between Saudi, uh-huh. Iran, and that sort of thing. Because there's still a lot of hardliners who are very much against this. Let's right. not forget, right? So I think this is a way of saying, we're going to put this here. Exactly. Right, 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 right. That's exactly what it was. But, you know, the real story is that this then led to the the fans in the stands then chanting things that the final chants were like death to dictator and things like that. Because... This, the environment is already so right. tense. and You want to watch already, a football game. Exactly. Yeah. So, oh. But then it didn't happen, right? No, and then so the team just left. They didn't play a game. This, <laughs> the, you mean, know, this was aired. There was chaos, all these things, and they just walked off and they're like, okay, well, yeah. bye. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, for all of the people who, including some friends or possibly relatives of mine that go to Iran and come back and go, Ichi says everything's oh, fine. Yeah. What do you, I mean, this doesn't happen anywhere else, right? right? Where do you Did, go to a football game and hear death to dictator? And it gets canceled because there's a statue of it. I mean, it's just the whole, it's just such nonsense yeah. going on, right? And so profoundly sad. In other countries, there's Taylor Swift <laughs> behind a, a glass <laughs> waving at the, the corner of the, whatever, the wide receiver or whatever he is. Um, all right. Well, uh, I, I wanted to ask you about this, the situation with, I actually want to bring on a guest to talk about the situation with Afghan refugees. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, where are we at with that in Iran? What is the, the issue uh, at, at present? Well, I mean, I think it's a long-standing issue. I don't think this is anything new. The refugee crisis um, with Afghans in all sorts of places. I mean, Pakistan, Iran, we've, Iran, we've seen this in so many different places. So this is definitely not something new. But I think the last couple of days, there was a social media campaign that was started. Um, and it was to kind of shed light on the ill treatment of Afghan refugees in all sorts of places, including Iran. Um, now, there's a lot of different sides to this there's you know talks of the fact that the Iranian regime is doing this and it's a conspiracy theory and they're trying to bring awareness to this so that you know people don't focus on other situations that are going on in the country for example what's happening with Armita and you know the woman life freedom movement and all sorts of things then there's another group of individuals who are saying well no this is this is a problem in and of itself we should be highlighting this we should be talking about this Um, And, you know, really the last couple of days, we've seen a lot of awareness about what's been happening. And there's a label being put, um, and a lot of people are calling it Afghan phobia in Iran, where, you know, a lot of individuals who are um, from Afghanistan are being treated horrifically Mm -hmm. in Iran. Um, And I I mean, they've, as they have been for a long time, right? We've talked about, don't they have different educational uh, uh, abilities? And uh, if they're Afghans and, uh, you know, you can't go to school in the same way Mm -hmm. and you can't, I mean, there's embedded, there's institutionalized racism in Iran towards Afghans, right? Exactly. I mean, they're, I mean, even second class citizens doesn't begin to describe it. There's so many atrocities that we've heard of, but really in the last. And at the same time, you know, we know that. Massive influxes of refugees can be destabilizing, can be difficult, can be uh, can exactly. in- invite uh, dismay when when people are having trouble making ends meet and an economy that's in shambles, all mm-hmm. this stuff. So you see, you see all the seeds of the issue, right? Exactly. And then, of course, like anything else in Iran, there's a divide between politicians. The hardliners say one thing, the quote-unquote reformers say one thing, something else. And so there's this open-door policy that Iran has adopted, if you will, for refugees and things like that. And there's all sorts of controversy around that. But I think the main thing and the thing that I think I wanted to point to mm-hmm. is the social media campaign and what that's brought on because there's a lot of people who are saying well you know this is a bullshit campaign on social media and it goes back to 
I remember there was like the Paris thing and people would put images on Facebook and people were saying, well, what does it help if you have just an right. image? And it's the... Um, I am just we... Uh, what was it? Was it, was it about the, the magazine? The, Which Paris thing? No, the, after the church that burned down and it was like marking yourself safe and all these other ah, social right, media yeah. things that we've talked about. Um, but I think it is important because it, it still brings awareness to the issues. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, with Iran, there's so many things every single day, but this is also part of it. So sure. I think it's definitely important to bring light to it. Did you realize that you, you rhymed Pakistan with Iran? And, and then I corrected you, myself. And then you realized you don't say Iran. Yes. So you said Iran. I did. And I, for the sake of consistency slash broadcasting slash my OCD, I think you should say Pakistan. <laughs> and then and say Iran. Iran? Okay. Yeah. That works better. Why yeah. not? I used to say Pakistan on the CBC and I would always get some letters, usually from racists, but people going, whoa. Mr. Bigwig, why do you have to say it like that? Oh like disappointed that I wasn't saying Pakistan. Do you ever something. win with pronunciations and things like that? Like I feel like no matter what you say, yeah. someone's just Because actually Obama got uh, criticized for that too. Obama should say Pakistan. And I was like, oh, he's on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> Iran, Pakistan, you know. Uh, and my sister's written about this as a linguist, you know, that sometimes it's, it's you're signaling to your audience. Mm-hmm. So when an American pop- a politician says Iran, they're sometimes doing that intentionally. Like, I'm with you. You know, I'm not even going to say the name of the country correctly. Ugh, I hate yeah. when politicians say Iran. What about when you say Pakistan and Iran? Ugh, that, that, and can we edit it. that out? I hated no, that. No, nope. <laughs> uh, we're coming to you on rookmedia.com. I mentioned that we're on all these different platforms. Listen, if you want to support us, we have a Patreon page. Uh, you can become a Rook member by going on our Patreon page and, and uh, for five bucks, as, as little as five bucks a month, you can become a Rook member and... I can't announce this officially yet, but we are going to start doing some programming that is mm-hmm. only available to those who are Rook members on yes. our Patreon account. So how do you become a Rook member? You go to rookmedia.com. I mean, there's a couple ways to do it. One of them is to go to our website, rookmedia.com. There's a big support us button. You press that and that takes you to the place where you can become a Patreon member. What's the other way? You go to Patreon. You go to Patreon directly and you search us up, Rook Media. Which is patreon.com slash Rook, Rook Media. Media. I feel like Iranians are not that accustomed to the Patreon thing yet. <laughs> well, what do you, why I am going, <laughs> you know, like, well, we got to bring them along. Just go through our we website. We need your support. Why not? Yeah, Patreon. Uh, thank you, Pega. Thank and, you. Jeez, um, I mean, uh, let's hope for better news around mm-hmm. Armita. And uh, as I, I mentioned in the essay, we don't know as of this moment where what what's going to happen with mm-hmm. her but um fingers crossed i suppose and and we'll talk more about it on the next show Definitely. thank you for thank being you. here let's uh get you out of here and bring our next guest in uh our actually our main guest for today uh there he is there he is has been walking in captain christopher borzu behnam is a distinguished Iranian-American pilot, aviation expert, motivational speaker, and fervent advocate for Iranian uh, human rights. He's also that guy who saved that flight in 2018 that had over 380 passengers on it and made him an immediate global name and pilot hero. Born in Amul and raised in Tehran, he embarked on a journey to England in 1976 to further his education. He left England and moved to the United States and pursued his passion for aviation 
by enrolling in an aviation academy and subsequently launched a career with United Airlines, where he has dedicated over three decades of service. His remarkable heroism and unwavering commitment to safety earned him the esteemed Superior Airmanship Award in recognition of his courageous actions in saving United Nations, uh, United Nations, United Airlines Flight 1175 on February 13th, 2018. Captain Behnam's latest achievement is a new book, his first and his life story entitled A Date with Destiny, the untold story of UA 1175 and right now. Captain Christopher Borzu Behnam joins me in the Rook studio here in Toronto. Hello, sir. Hello, Gian. Thank you so much for having me over. Welcome to the Rooks. Welcome to Toronto. Thank you. Yeah, it's um, wonderful to be in Toronto. The weather is awesome. Came here to visit a friend, and you uh, asked me if I wanted to come to the studio to do an interview. I said, why not? (laughs) One of my heroes. First of all, I don't understand why I'm one of your heroes. Yeah. Oh, I I love that. Thank you very much. (laughs) I mean, listen, if you're this global senior uh, pilot, aviator guy, how come you don't come to Toronto more often? Don't you just get to go wherever you want, whenever you want? Well, um, so I can explain something to your uh, audience. Uh, United is a very large airline. They have nine different bases all over the U.S. And depending where you're based, the type of flying that base does is different. Like um, out of San Francisco, we mostly cover Asia, Pacific, and Europe. And um, coming to Toronto or across the U.S., smaller cities, or shorter distance is usually for smaller airplanes. And because I fly the Boeing 777 jumbo jet that can fly 15, 16, 17 hours, they don't assign those short Have you thought of enrolling in the points program with (laughs) United Airlines that if you fly enough? (laughs) I I, I love how you answered the question seriously, though. You took it very seriously. Let me explain. There's different hubs. And we, I was just, uh, I mean, but I don't think you've been to Toronto in a while, right? Well, 25 years, yeah. And and as an uh, Iranian expat, as somebody who's been outside of Iran for a long time, but I know very publicly uh, identifies as very Iranian, what's it like for you to come? I know your friend has been taking you through Tehranto up here and seeing just how Iranian Toronto has become. What's that been like for you? Well, it's very interesting. I mean, I was absolutely amazed. Uh, The street uh, that we went up and down. Young Street? Young Street, yeah. I mean... It's Iranian stores one after the other and markets and everything is in Persian. I was, it was really impressive. <laughs> um, I had a question for him. I, I don't know, is it, how many Iranians are in Toronto right now? It's a few in, hundred thousand now. A few hundred thousand. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a lot. Yes. I think we're, we've become the new epicenter. It used to be Los Angeles, yes. and, and certainly there's a huge population in Southern California of Iranians, yes. but we're quickly eclipsing that in Toronto because so many Iranians come here now each year. Yeah, it was via uh, United Airlines. Yes, uh, or or other <laughs> other <laughs> segue. Uh, you're partly here because you've got this new book, mm-hmm. um, and I feel very fortunate because. We're going to talk about the book, and I've had the chance to read the book, but the book is not out yet. It will be out. It was supposed to be out in the beginning of October. It's going to be out soon before Christmas, though, right? Yeah, we. Um, I was asked to send it to United Legal and HR Department for their review, and um, I think within a month or two, they should be done with it, and it should be out. It's all done. 
has all been edited, publishing, just standing by to get the okay. So we just want to make sure, you know, when you're talking about the major airline like the uh, United, you want to make sure that everything that is in the book is to their liking and there's and that's partly because the book is about the that fateful day uh that uh that almost ended in in disaster but rather ended in this happy story of heroism on on your part um it's a very compelling book because um you tell that story at the same time as you do these flashbacks to your life and essentially it's it's your life story it's an autobiography of, Mm -hmm. of sorts it's always interesting when someone writes an autobiography, especially when it's their first book. Mm-hmm. Why did it feel like the right time now to write this book? Actually, to be honest with you, I wasn't even thinking about it. So the gentleman who does the computer-based training for United Airlines, because every three months we have to take ongoing courses to stay current as pilots, he does the CBT training. And because my incident was so significant, um, well, actually, any incident that has aviation involved in it is significant so the airlines what's cbt training a computer-based training uh-huh. okay so and sorry I, i'm gonna keep stopping you asking no, yeah, so every yeah. every three months you have to take new training yes so even though you've been flying for decades yes that makes sense there's new dials new gadgets new whatever is that the well every three months you have to stay on top of what you know because information keeps changing that's okay. why in my opinion aviation is so safe because the rules change on a daily basis okay and you have to keep up with that okay on top of that I have to do a physical test every six months to maintain my FAA first class medical. How did the chicken kebab you just had in, uh, <laughs> in Tehran, so how's that going to affect your physical? Uh, <laughs> Not too much cholesterol, so it should be fine. <laughs> right. And on top of those two things that we have to do, so every three months is a CBT training, every six months I have to get the FAA physical, and every nine months, we go for an oral and practical test at Denver Training Center, where all your knowledge and expertise are um, being tested in the simulator. That's where we simulate engine failure, fire, separation, electrical failure, hydraulic problems with the airplane. And this is not, I'm assuming this isn't unique to United Airlines. This is what, these are standards that across the board Most, that all... Yeah, all major carriers in the world, whether it's British Airways, Air France, Air Canada, they have to do this training for continued qualification for their pilots. Okay. Then again, I want to say to the public, some people who are afraid of flying, is, this is the safest industry you can imagine. Now, hmm. yes, if something goes wrong, if it's a pilot error or the airplane, you know, something goes wrong and they crash, it makes big news because there's so many people that die in one incident mm-hmm. or actually accident in incident people don't die in accident people die and obviously something went t- terribly wrong in the past it could have been weather related such as delta airline in 1986 i believe was a wind shear and because of all those problems that happened in the past ntsb national transportation safety board board gets involved with the FAA and they come up with new policies and new training mm. for the pilots. In my case, the severity of that engine, catastrophic engine failure was so bad that uh, they cannot duplicate that in the simulator. Mm. There are two black boxes in the airplane. One is called the CVR, cockpit voice recorder, 
that records everything we talk about, and the other one is a flight data recorder, FDR, that tells the airlines, Boeing and NTSB, mm -hmm. what happened to the wing, pitch attitude of the airplane, what happened to the engines. So when they got the flight data recorder information out of the airplane, and they fed it into the computer to duplicate the problem in the simulator, mm. um, it literally was tearing the sim apart. And these are $15 million machines that we train in. They're just exactly identical to the cockpit of a specific aircraft you fly. Okay, yeah. In my case, it's 777. But the shaking and vibration was so uh, severe that the hydraulic jacks off the cement were getting torn up. You mentioned so, you mentioned a couple of times the kind of plane you you fly. So, different pilots are assigned to different kinds of planes, and you don't mix it up. You, you don't mix it up. You so you don't fly one. small. You, you'd know how to fly a smaller plane. Yep. Right? But you're not allowed to, or you don't want to, or you. No, you don't. You're not allowed to. You're, you're not allowed only, to. No, you're only qualified to f fly one. So, so you couldn't pilot a Porter Airlines flight from Toronto to New York with uh, Airbus four, or seven thirty-seven. I I'm a qualified to do it as a pilot in the case of emergency. I can jump in and save the day for sure. Uh, but which you <laughs> literally that a good guy to have on the plane. Yeah, yeah. But get the guy who saved the people before. Bring yeah, him back here. Yeah. yeah. But in, in reality, um, when you, it's called bidding, you bid a equipment or a 737 or 757 or 767 or 777 or 787, you are only qualified to fly that airplane. You have to dump all the knowledge and expertise oh. you had in the previous. Now, 30,000 hours I have, 20,000 of that was on a Boeing 67. But when I left the 767 fleet to go to triple, I can't take those information, the numbers, the weights, the speeds, nothing of the old machine into this new. This stuff, can I just say, is reassuring. I mean, it is reassuring to hear that pilots have to continue to do all this testing and that you particularly know the, know the particular plane that you fly. Mm -hmm. and all. When you talk about people out there who might be scared of flying or whatever, I've I've flown a lot, especially since as a kid, we were fortunate enough to uh, fly around, and I've always been on planes throughout my life. And I, I, it's one of those things where as I got older, I've gotten more uncomfortable with turbulence. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know some people, actually a friend, I mentioned Toronto to New York, a friend of mine, a guy who flies a lot, told me he had a extremely, this was very recent, within the last couple of weeks, an extremely turbulent flight from Toronto to New York. I find that short flight can be a lot more turbulent than flying from here to Dubai or something. I, I don't, you can probably explain why. Smaller plane, lower airspace, I don't know what it is. But but he said it was so bad, he's like, I, I can't fly anymore. This was, uh, really? what, what do you tell people who, um, get freaked out when the when the plane is bouncing around like that. Well, I study the weather. I understand it really well. Things just don't happen. You know, we have what we call CAT, C-A-T, clear air turbulence. The simplest way I can make it for average person to understand, if you think of rivers on the ground, there are rivers of air in the air. We call it jet streams. Mm -hmm. And uh, depending on the altitude, they might be going at... 100, 200 knots. So it's just a fast flowing river or body of air. It's just almost like uh, what you have in the ocean, like Gulf streams mm. and uh, current. 
it exists above the ground too. So let's say if the wind is going from left to right and you have to cross it, when you get to that area of this massive air, hundreds of miles wide, traveling like a river in the sky, mm -hmm. when you're gonna get into it, it's gonna be turbulent. When you're in it, it's gonna push you with it and it's smooth, but when you're coming out of it, back to the normal atmosphere, right, right. it does that. That doesn't help anybody who's, <laughs> thank no. you for explaining that, but. Right, yeah, but, uh, but since I know it, uh -huh. I can tell the people and uh -huh. very accurately, like three hours into the flight, we're gonna hit turbulence for 20 minutes. Right. And then the altitudes too, and you know, the temperature changes for every thousand feet you go up, the temperature drops four degrees. And when there are, let's say if the wind is just going over the ocean, it's different than hitting the side of the mountain mm -hmm. because it's gonna go up. And then on the lower side, upwind side, the wind's gonna go up, on the lower side, it's gonna drop. So if you're gonna across the mountains, there's an area that you're gonna have downdrafts. We call it downdrafts, it's gonna pull the air up and down. Okay. And then you go on the other side of the mountain, you get hit by updrafts, it wants to push the airplane up. Okay. So as you go through all these different areas, that's where the turbulence happens. But when the plane's bouncing around, you're gonna tell us that it, there's nothing wrong, right? We shouldn't be worried. Well. I want you to rest assured whether it's a Boeing jet or a Airbus jet, whatever the numbers for stress on that airplane, we can exceed that by 30 or 40% and the airplane would not fall apart. Mm. These things are made to last for lifetime. I mean, we have airplanes that are flying, made in the 50s mm. and they have tens of thousands, maybe 50 or 100,000 hours on them. Are you someone who likes to talk to the passenger? I, I always like it when the pilot comes yeah. on in some, somewhat of a fake, calm voice. And they go, hey, everybody, don't worry about it. Uh, it's your captain speaking. We're gonna, we have a few bumps here, but we're gonna get you out of this, so we'll be nice. I am I go, oh, there. that's great. And then when they don't say anything, you think, maybe something's going wrong. <laughs> the captain hasn't said anything. Where is she, where is he? The but, only time I did that talk was when I had my incident, because- Well, that's the, exactly, right? Yeah. No, we did make the announcement. Okay, all right. But one of my job as a commander of that jet was, I turned around, told the other guy, I delegate this responsibility to talk to ATC, uh, air traffic control, and the passengers and the flight tenants to him. By the way, on that flight, because you watch the videos of the people made selfies on your flight, uh, as you know, this could be it, they're gonna die. What what did what did your people next to you, your, your co-pilots or yourself, what did you tell the passengers? Well, I always tell, my co-pilot or any, anything happens in the airplane, first of all, I keep people updated on delays and everything, and if anything goes wrong, I tell them the truth. I don't keep anything away from them. Even in that case, we told them we had a severe engine damage because people are looking at on the, out of the window, seeing oh. this thing fell apart, right? So you can't sugarcoat that one, right? <laughs> right so right. I said, Nothing to look at. Folks, don't look left. <laughs> Whatever you do, everything's fine. Yeah. Obviously, it but was that, a but, catastrophic uh, failure. But that is actually a uh, that's that's so interesting because I, you th you know, you hear these stories of everybody that the flight attendants, everybody's supposed to look very calm, and you know, um, that's interesting that you believe. Tell them exactly what's going on. Exactly going on, and I did tell them because I had to tell them we secured the engine, but there is no runways to land on because we are over the Pacific Ocean, Jeez. and we had to drag that airplane basically. Um, a compromised aircraft aerodynamically for 200 miles 
And we knew we were going to meet the Earth at some point. It better be a runway there when we come close to it. And um, so I had to, even though I didn't want to, but I had to tell the flight attendants to prep the cabin for ditching, which is crashing the water, airplane into mm. the water. Mm. These things, you know, weigh 500 plus thousand pounds going at 250 miles an hour. You hit the 10-foot, 15-foot waves, you might as well hit in a concrete right. head-on with your car at 100 miles an hour. Right. There's not going to be anything left over. So option of putting this on the ground and singing Kumbaya and get off the airplane was not, I mean, is, is not a possibility. Uh, Captain Sully was very fortunate. He landed on a calm day on Hudson River, no wakes, no waves, and he had miles and yeah. miles of coasting it down yeah. and putting it on the ground. My hats are off to him. We didn't have that option. Have you spoken to him, by the way? I have. Uh, you guys have a WhatsApp group or something of no, we don't. pilots who've saved uh, no, lives? No, he's, he's very busy. We do have the same FAA examiner for our physical. Uh-huh. So we've been in touch that way. And um, he's given me kudos on what I did. And, of sure. course, I, my hat's off to him. He's one of my heroes. By the way, th- I blame myself for this because I, you, once you start talking, I have so much I want to ask you, but we're still on question one, which was why did you decide to, to, to write a book about your life story now? Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 well, you were, I think where you were going with this was that somebody else had told you. Dr. Tony Kern, yeah. when he wanted, because they couldn't duplicate the uh, problem on board of the aircraft, we created an animation so pilot could watch it. And Dr. Kern got involved and broke the animation that we have made, and I think you have seen it, is yep. on YouTube yep. under Captain Benham. That's basically based on the cockpit voice recorder, what exactly happened up there. And as he's spreading this out over the year, every quarter they were gonna show part of it. And one thing he said that based on my interview with the NTSB that caught his eyes was focus forward because the other two pilots were saying that, I mean, everybody was, needless to say, was challenged and scared. Yeah. I mean, your life just, you almost thought this is it, is over. Yeah. Uh, initially, we all thought it was over because when the airplane almost rolls on its back, you gotta understand this 777, which is four blocks long and wide, if mm-hmm. you put it on the mm-hmm. ground, is almost an acre from nose to tail to mm-hmm. wingtip, mm-hmm. going at five, 600 miles an hour yeah, and then she rolls. It's just like a cruise missile going out of control, and because we had no automation, so this is where AI is going to fail, because AI couldn't handle it. Autopilot couldn't handle it. It broke. The severity was so bad, it just went out. That's interesting. And we could not reengage the, the autopilot. Yeah, we could not reengage the autopilot or uh-huh. auto throttle, and. I mean, again, what happened that day up there had never happened in the history of a 777. So we were the first one to experience it, and thankfully for my crew and myself and our experience, we were able to land the airplane. So he said, this is the time to write a book. (laughs) We start becoming friends, Uh and he said, well, tell me a little bit about you. What made you, because he said, it wasn't just your skill. Uh That day saved the day. How did you stay calm? You know, they, he wanted to psychology behind yes, it. Yes. You know, how did you didn't give up? Yes. What was your resilience? Yes. You know, it was you could easily, you know, just give up and you know, just so much. 
and I sit, start talking about my life, my dad, you know, what I've learned throughout my life, what lessons I've learned. And he says, you need to write a book. And I want people to know this because not only you did something incredible, but your life has been incredible because of all the challenges you've had as a man until this point. Because he absolutely believes, and he does motivational and leadership seminars, he says, we are here for a reason. There is a defining moment and a purpose in one's life. One could be just be a great mother. One could be to go change well, the world. Let me interrupt you there, if you don't, if you yeah. forgive me, because mm -hmm. I want to come to that. In fact, there's a Winston Churchill quote in the foreword to the book, and yeah. it's and it's a it's a quote that I th I think I've heard you cite as well. And let me let me give you the quote. It's uh, let the folks out there the quote that to to each there comes in their lifetime a special moment when they are figuratively tapped on the shoulder and offered the chance to do a very special thing, unique to them, fitted to their talents. What a tragedy if that moment finds them unprepared or unqualified for that which could have been their finest hour. So this speaks to you. You put it in the foreword to your book. Do, do you believe on some some level, it's a, it's a strange idea, maybe even a macabre one, but do you believe you were called upon to be the person in the cockpit on the day of Flight 1175? Yes, absolutely, because prior to this, throughout my childhood and being raised in until the age of 18 in Iran and coming here, I faced death three times. And for some magical reason, it wasn't my time. I absolutely believe I was meant to be in that place at that moment. And everything, and we'll talk about this later, but I'll call it the five stars that day that lined up mm -hmm. for us to make this successful landing. Mm -hmm. If any of them was not there, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. Uh, the fact that you know I had survived through those incidents in my life, I had survived um, on my own, with a dad in political, as a political prisoner. The fact that I love to sail, which is a balance between nature and a, mm -hmm. and a sailboat, which is like a half a wing of an airplane on the right side up. And the fact that I'm a third degree black belt. Yes, I, I was gonna Zen get to that. Yes. And martial arts, and the fact that. How does that help? Being centered and in control. Right. And no matter what is happening around you, you're like, I need to stay focused and not let all the noises around you bother you. Uh, unique to them, fitted to their talents. What a tragedy if that moment finds them unprepared or unqualified. You yeah. are prepared, you're qualified, and it's fitted to your talents. Yeah, in my case was being in that moment, saving 381 lives. And I can say that in a world stage, unfortunately we have leaders who have been tapped on the shoulder to become presidents, whether they're in Iran or the United States or some other parts of the world, and they take that position, but they're not prepared mm. because or all qualified. of this does mm. not qualified. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we have seen the mess that that creates. And I take that very, very, very deeply in heart. As you know, also, Jian, that I like to balance rocks mm -hmm. because I say everything in life has a balance point. Even yes, a dead you're all rock. about nature's balance. Yeah, 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 and that's basically you know following nature's principles and 
because everything points to a true north. Where there's nature, I mean, there's one true north, and your value system, your rules and value system points to a true north for you. Sorry, so how does that relate to a crashing airplane? Just being aligned with, mm. you know, all your senses and not letting one overtake the uh. other one, not letting fear take over you. Mm. I mean, we, some of us have the qualification and expertise to do certain things, but we don't have the self-confidence to deal with it. And that is when some people fail because like, oh my God, I have rehearsed this, I have simulated this, but in reality, when my life is really in danger, can I make it? And unfortunately, there have been cases that airliners have crashed due pilot error or lack of knowledge. Mm. I mean, something could have gone wrong with the airplane and they could not handle it. You know, um, I mean, we we did an interview previously, and we focused a lot on what happened uh, at that incident that that day, that famous day for you now. Um, and there's so much to this book I want to get to uh, that is related to that, but beyond it. Um, although it's interesting to me that you, you know, you're a lot of things. Uh, you're you're. A, a karate black belt. You're a father. You're a, a guy who's been piloting for many years. You're you're an Iranian. You're a, you're a um, motivational person, etc. You are now and perhaps forever defined by this event, this thing that happened, yes. this thing that you were at the. Is that is that strange for you, especially given that it's something that's come in the, if you'll forgive me, in the second half of your life, you mm -hmm. know? So this thing has happened four or five years ago that now defines you. This is who you, all that you were before and presumably all that you're gonna be after this, this is the thing that everybody knows you for and will know you for. Is that odd? I don't think it's odd. I think it's a new calling for me to do something more significant that I have done throughout my whole life. There's a reason all of this happened, I believe. I absolutely love sharing. I don't like to tell people, I don't like to um, teach people, but I like to coach. I love, I mean, there's nothing more exciting to me than be able to lift somebody up, grab them under their wings and bring them up. And I always say, if you wanna call, some people say, but you have tremendous leadership skills. You are a leader. I said, I don't see myself like that, but what I see is that I look for potential leaders, mm. teach them how to lead, and I want to get out of the way and let these young people go become better than Captain Benham. You know, uh, the, the pilots, they say, oh, my dream is to be just like you. I said, you know, my dream is for you to be better than me. Mm. I want you, and I have helped people. And when I talk to audiences, as, as you know, the 500,000 or a million people you know, do likes on my Instagram, if one person I'm able to touch their lives and change their lives, mm. that's where I think I have really succeeded. Your father yes. plays a major role in your life and a major role in this book. A lot of the book is about your dad, your, mm -hmm. late, your late father. In, in the last interview we did, you talked about how it was the prospect of seeing your dad one last time. He was dying of cancer at the time of your incident. That was your great incentive 
uh, amongst many incentives. This was focused in your mind and wanting to land the plane to save all those lives and see him a final time. Talk to us a bit about your dad. What, what, why was your father such a special man? I personally think that he was the most democratic person I have met. When I was a young kid, you know, he was with Jebhe Meli in Iran. The National Front? National Front, yeah, following Mossadegh and all of that. So I don't want to get into politics. It is what it is, you know. Um, the fact of the matter is when I left Iran, I was 18 years old, uh, right after my diploma. And half my life, my dad was in prison by the Savak. And as Shah was leaving the country, they gave him a post because he wanted all the oppositions to come in. He becomes ambassador in Spain. He became an ambassador, Iranian ambassador to Spain, unbeknown to us that Khomeini regime didn't like that idea. And when he was asked to go back to the country, which unfortunately he did, never made it through the airport. And he ended up in the same event prison as he was in the Shah's time, but now he's in Islamic Republic time. It took me almost 20 years to reunite with my dad after he was in, put in prison in 1980 when the war was going on with Iraq. And the first thing he said to me, and I knew this because all his, except for Daryush Furuhar at the time, mm-hmm. all his friends were executed. He was only left Daryush Furuhar and Mr. Safe, the only three people left from Jeppe Meli. Mm-hmm. And of course, we know what they did to Daryush Furuhar, sure. him and his poor wife. Um, the stuff that happened to my dad, that it's in the book, um, he was many times threatened to be killed and executed. And he always told himself that, I'm not gonna allow these people to destroy me. I will make it out of here because I have only one son and I have not said my goodbyes yet. Hmm. And, um, I get a little choked up thinking about this after all these years. But So when the incident happened up there, I know he's sick, and I'm a promise keeper. He kept his promise, so it was my job. Mm. And I said that today is not the day we're going to die because I have not said my goodbyes. And uh, a few weeks after that, he passed away. And I told my mom, sisters, please don't tell him You know what happened up there. He's in hospital bed. And uh, don't tell him, I want to tell him myself. And of course, when I told him, he says, I knew you're going to tell him. And you're not going to give up on those people. You know, the first time, because uh, he gets taken to prison a, a number of times, as you say, yeah. under, under the Shah and then in the Khomeini years. But the first time is uh, he's involved in the National Front and, and Savak and et cetera are not happy about this. And, and you're six years old. The first time they come, they arrest him. You're, you see this happen, right? They yeah. take him, they detain him, uh, they, they take him away, they throw him in, in prison. Tell me about the impact um, that that had on you as a kid and how that stayed with you. You write about that in the book. I mean, it's one thing as an adult with an Islamic revolution happening to understand that they're taking your dad and detaining him, etc. Mm-hmm. It's another, though, as a, as a six-year-old, to not really know what's going on and to, for your dad to kind of be your hero and to see these guys come and take him. What kind of an impact did that, did that have on you, and how does it still resonate, perhaps? Well, I, I would say the impact on my sister was a lot worse than it was on me, and we are like 
Irish twins. She's only 11 months older than me. And I remember that very vividly and clearly. You know, the house, the first house where we lived in Tehran, it was had the narrow streets, you know, the streets and the houses on the left and the right side. We left in a house on the left side and four or five houses to the right was my grandmother, my dad's mom. Me and my sister are playing, my mom is out shopping, and somebody knocks on the door, my sister opens the door, and they introduce themselves as dad's friends, and our uncles, you know, that's what said, Amudis, Amudat, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, they just very nicely asked my sister, who was older than me, where's my dad? And she pointed out exactly where the building he's in. And next we hear, uh, it's a commotion, a lot of fighting going on, a lot of uh, shouting. And then we open the door and we see our dad, bloody in white shirt, I can remember so clearly, literally being dragged out, you know, just five or six big guys. I mean, when you're six years old, everybody's right, big. Right. I don't know how tall they were, but they were, to me, were giants. And mm. all I remember, my dad looking back as he's being dragged away, looking us in the eyes, and he's just like, sorry, kids. And I, I just didn't know, I mean, the emotions that I felt. So needless to say, the two kids, my sister started crying. She went to the other side of the room and I'm just sitting wondering what just happened here. My mom comes home with the grocery bags in her hand and you know, just choking and telling what happened. And she just drops all the groceries on the floor and almost passes out. And that was like, we didn't see our dad for another nine months. And uh, the impact of my sister, she's still, blames herself for that even though she blames herself yeah and we told her you know nobody blames even my dad told her don't you know i never blamed you for doing that because it was his first of course of course um he gets arrested a number of times you write at one point that let me quote you the the only crime he had committed was loving his country yeah what do you mean by that as I said, he was the most democratic person. He was well-educated, was a professor in university. He just wanted nothing but the best. He really wanted the democratic government. Um, I'm not gonna label the previous government as dictators, but there are dictators comes in all form and shape. You know, some are suits, some are in turbans. Um, it wasn't a country like, if Iran didn't have problem, we wouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. That's something that I really wish people understand. Here meaning uh, in, in this, outside of Iran? No, no, it, no. here meaning the situation in Iran uh-huh, uh-huh, with right. the Ayatollahs and Mullahs. Mm. If everything in the past was But also was we good, probably wouldn't have been here. We probably would be in personally, Iran. Personally, we would not have yeah, been yeah, here. Yeah, I mean, you and I would probably be in, I mean, you, you were planning to go back to Iran, right? Yeah, the, my, you, the, the only the, Wasn't reason, that the plan when you left to England yeah. in 1976 and then you came to the States? The idea is you wanted to be a pilot for Iran Air. Yeah. Uh, so your thought was, I was I'm, you're going to go back. Yeah. You end up in the States, the revolution happens. You must have felt towards the end of the 70s when the Shah makes your dad ambassador in Spain, you kind of every the family must have had a sigh of relief. Okay, things have turned around. Now we've got this fancy ambassadorship, etc. Revolution happens, the war begins. He's summoned back to Iran, he's arrested. This time, you're not in Iran, you're in the States. How hard was it to not be in Iran in those years with your father detained under Khomeini? There is something I have to point out. We didn't know he's detained. He just disappeared for two and a half years. We didn't know if he's dead or alive. Oh, I thought you knew he was in prison, but you weren't sure he was. So you didn't even know where he was. No, he never made it through the airport. My uncles were waiting for him 
on the other side. He never made it through the airport. And the call, my mom gets the call that, where is he? So, well, he got on a flight. Come to Iran. So, no, he didn't come. No, he did come. So that went on for two and a half years. He mm. just disappeared. Is there with the help of my mom, sisters, uncles, and Daryush Fruhar that they found that he's alive and back in prison. He just literally disappeared. So I got here in 79 as the hostages were taken. Immediately after here that. Here meaning In the United San States. Francisco. I'm sorry, yeah, yes. Yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. <laughs> Sadly, it wasn't Toronto where yeah. you're now eating your chicken kebab. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And I'm in the United States. Money's cut out. There was no money coming in. I'm trying to figure things out. And within a few months, the country gets invaded by Iraq. So the company's in war. And yes, I called my mom. I said, I'm coming back. I'm going to be. Uh, the movie Rambo was out. Hmm. Yeah, I thought that I'm gonna be Rambo, gonna get the machine gun, go get my dad out of prison. You know, you, I actually really? thought you about. You actually thought you you would go back. Yeah, with actually, the gun I was and, thinking yeah. of buying an airplane, go to Turkey, get under the radar, wow. go to Iran, land somewhere on dirt, wow, get my dad out, put him on the airplane, fly out of the country. We actually thought about it. a friend of mine was gonna help me. I hate to say this, baby, I don't know where he is now, but we were actually thinking of doing that. And I told my mom, I'm coming back. She said, son, don't. You're the only son. You're the only hope we have. Go make something out of yourself. Stand on your two feet. Go after your dream because we're counting on you. So I did become eventually an American citizen. And being a promise keeper, not in a religious format, keeping my promises to my dad and my mom, I brought every single one of them over hmm. and helped them get on their feet, and thank God none of them depend on the government in the U.S. They were business persons that work for somebody or they work for the state, and everybody's doing good. You've said that your, your strength, you say this in the book, your strength comes from your dad. Mm -hmm. What is your greatest strength? Not giving up, not having fear. I don't think I ever saw my dad having fear. Even at the worst time, he never showed fear, nor did he blame anybody else. He said, this is what I chose. I know it's a one-way ticket for him. And uh, he did it. And you're not afraid of anything? Define everything. Well, I, you said uh, my greatest strength is not having fear, so. I don't. Well, so I don't. you're not afraid of anything? I'm not. It's not a cliche. I'm, I'm not uh, seriously. I mean, when that jet rolled over within one and a half second, what Captain Sully said at the movie, mm. because FAA and NTSB were blaming him for decisions he made to put the airplane in the water, even though he saved the people, he lost the airplane and could have been really bad. So at the end of the movie, he says, well, there was a hesitation factor or a delayed reaction or starter factor that you have to throw that mm. into the equation for like 30 seconds. And when they put that information in the computer, the test pilot could not make LaGuardia hmm. or Newark. And says, okay, you're off the hook. We didn't have that 30 second. That jet at Mach 8.3, remember what happened to Sully and what happened out of Denver for the United Jets? They were just taking off, just Yes. Going up. Within the first yeah, minute or something, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the airplane is a slow airspeed. Yeah. 
When you're up there at Mach 8.3, almost to the speed of sound, at 36,000 feet, you're like a runaway train, right? Mm. So when she rolled within one and a half second, I had no time to be afraid of anything. And I had to understand, this is something most pilots, when they hear it, it's like, oh my God. The airplane rolled to the right, so my body is telling me counterbalance it by rolling to the left. Mm except that all the engine instruments were normal. So we didn't even know there was a problem with the airplane. People said, didn't you know your airplane is on fire? No, if you look at the picture, when the cowling, the exterior part of the airplane came apart, the engine took all the indications that send information to the cockpit with it. Mm. So the picture I had in front of me, imagine this rock picture here stays there and then 30 seconds disappear. So you trust it because that's all you see. We can't see the wing on those airplanes. We can't see the engines. They're 150 feet behind us. So you have no reference. All you have is this engine instrument in front of you. Your airplane is rolling on its back, and then you see two good engines. But that makes you, not to try and pick at it, but that makes you, a, I mean, a hero. It makes you a professional. It makes you someone who is reacting in the moment. But this thing about not having any fear, I, it's it's amazing to me. I mean, I, I, I um, you recount that the few times you nearly died in the book. We've talked about that. I'm presuming if I ask you if you have a fear of death, you're going to say no? No. Because, you know, that's the big one for a lot of us, right? So what, what you know... What happens? We just end, and, and and you know, uh, and that's that can be scary. I once asked Leonard Cohen in, in, about uh, death. Are you afraid of death? And he said, "Well, not so much the death, but the preliminaries. You know, getting there. What you know, <laughs> in other words, sickness or or what happens to us as we get older, or you know, all of those things. You're not afraid of any of that. No, I've always pushed the envelope. Everything I've done in life, I've pushed the envelope, and everything I've done in life, whether it's flying, sailing, cooking or balancing rocks or martial arts, I took it to the mastery level. I always push, push, push to get to that point. I haven't done too many things in life, but four or five things I have done, I push it to the mastery level. And when I say I don't have a fear, because this is what I teach, is fear to me is F-E-A-R, false evidence appear <laughs> real. You know, it's to me is like 80% of people fear about things that never happens to well, them. Well, death is going to happen to both of us. You know what? So that's not false evidence. To be honest with you, when I leave this studio and I put my head down tonight, and I, if I don't wake up, wake up tomorrow, I'm okay with it. Because I have done everything I wanted to do in my life. Hmm. Maybe that's my goal-setting nature or getting to where I want to be. And that's why I keep pushing for, for more and more. And when I think that this may be opened a new chapter for me, for the future, maybe a new career, whether I'm gonna be more into speaking engagements or helping other people, you get that fulfillment that as long as you're giving, it makes you feel good. I love your balance, man. I mean, I don't know if that's the martial arts or what that is, you know, you're, it's, you're, there's a real sense of grounding and um, connectedness to you that is, is so impressive. Um, by the way, did you just say that you're a master at cooking? 
I only make five dishes and I'm pretty damn good. <laughs> what are the five finger, dishes? Finger looking good. <laughs> what are the, name one of the dishes that you're a master at. So because uh, I travel so much, uh -huh. I have four kids, two boys and two girls, and I would come from different countries. If I ate a good food, I would actually go grab the chef and talk to him and tell him, you know, please tell me how you did this. So we had Brazilian nights, we had Italian nights, we had fish and chips for British nights, we had ramen for Japanese nights. Um, so my spaghetti, die for. Your spaghetti, that's your, that's your, yeah. your master at making spaghetti? The best. The boiling the pasta? What, what's, no, what he makes you? No, no, I make it from scratch. Uh, what do you mean you make it from scratch? Everything's from scratch. You, you, you don't buy the pasta. You make pasta? No, no, I buy the pasta. Okay, you buy the pasta. That's spaghetti What do you make it from scratch? It's spaghetti, you put no, it the, in the, the water. Sauce. Everything to oh, do right. with the sauce, oh, okay. right? Yeah. Everything is fresh. <laughs> and I'll make it for an army. Oh. And I add okay. mushrooms, uh, shiatki mushrooms to my spaghetti, bell pepper, and I shred carrots, carrots as well, oh. to put it in. Carrots? And you all put right. in a little kick with the jalapeno pepper in oh, it. Yeah. it it's, all right, all right. It's good. I'm getting that, the Chef Captain Band on yep. here. And then chef Band uh, My eggplant Sorry, yeah. parmesan is to die, not eggplant parmesan. Uh, what is that Persian dish, eggplant dish? Yes, oh. and Malia loves it. My girlfriend loves right. it, and uh, right. and my ramen. You sort the you you sort the bottom June. You 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 fry it. No, what she do you do? does that part. She's really good at that. What is it? This is your master cook. She makes she makes it. Well, I delegate. What do you do? <laughs> Jesus. But basically, you know how to make spaghetti. That's no, what we've learned. No, 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 yeah, yeah, no. Okay. No, no, no. <laughs> I had no. She was. I like how there's five dishes I'm the master of. No, no, no. Thank God you're good at flying right. planes. This no, one, no, yeah. seriously, seriously. So, spaghetti is okay, good. Okay, spaghetti. My yes, you know how to make good. spaghetti. Yes. Ramen, also, which dishes. is spaghetti, basically. That's a noodle, right? You, yeah, you, but it's all about the So sauce. far, you know how to boil things. Yeah. Well, yeah. So far. <laughs> And my favorite dish okay. of all time. Yeah. I love that you said hoisted by them, June. Then it turns out she makes it. No, no, you, what I, she you do? Just fries about them, June. Uh, okay, she makes the mother the hard part. What do you? What you? The you rest make the, with chicken. You, the, and the, the, the chicken. Okay. Yeah, uh, the, right, frying right, the right, onion, right. putting the tomato in, the turmeric. What you're talking about? Uh, Go ahead. What else? What's the? What else? And uh, my kebabs are really good. Okay, because I mix lamb and beef together. You have a grill. You have a, You make it on a barbecue. Or? Yes, yeah. barbecue. Grill that, and uh, and my favorite dish of all time mm -hmm. is rainbow trout with okay. uh, dill rice. Okay. I love to catch the fish, clean the fish. You clean the cook fish. It, you make the pasta and eat it. You right? Okay. <laughs> What else is he cooking? <laughs> <laughs> you just gonna put the yeah. portions together and You're all of that. Master at the rainbow trap. Well, I, I, I got you. No, I. <laughs> Listen, I know that you're you're a superstar pilot. Actually, you're not a pilot. Here's something I learned in your book. What you you talk about being an aviator? You prefer yes. aviator to pilot? Yes. You know well, why? I tell say us the that? difference. Yeah. Because the guy pushing the barge down the Mississippi River. He's a pilot. Or, you know, like you said, the, the ships come to shore. They have pilot ships. You know, uh, like, uh, that's a pilot. But to be an aviator is all the way around, all weather ops, east, west, north, south, Pacific, Atlantic. Pilot's kind of down market for you. Yeah. You don't want to just yeah. be you called a be pilot. You want to be an aviator. Right. Yeah. Okay. And I'm fortunate to work for a company that had allowed me, I've been to 44 countries half the year at between 30 and 40,000 feet. So my view of the world is different. 
it's another thing. When you're up there, you see the balance. Mm. You really see how magnificent this earth is and how balanced it is. And you try to mimic and duplicate that through meditation. The book is called A Date with Destiny, The Untold Story of UA 1175, Captain Christopher Behnam. Now, I don't know if we can talk about this. You've talked to me about this a little bit off the air. In fact, we've had a couple of phone calls about this, but there's a potential movie of the book or the potential movie of your story in the works as well. Are you allowed to talk about this? Don't, don't talk about it if it's going to screw things up somehow. No, I'm just going to tell the people that there are producers and directors looked at it and they think it's very, very promising. Bottom line is the story of a love between the father and a son mm. is a love story between father and a son that because mm -hmm. of political reasons, they were separated for mm -hmm. so many mm -hmm. years. And what the son learned from the dad that he's passing it on to not only his family, mm. but to the rest of the world, whoever wants to listen to. Um, it has, I'd like to introduce you to my friend Barry Navidi, who's an executive producer and is a good friend with Al Pacino, that they have read the book and they put a, their you know, thumbs on it and endorse it. And they're working on this. Uh, obviously, as we know, there were writers strike, but there are few people working on it very heavily mm. and it's been shown to some big names and they're really, really interested in yeah. it. So the momentum is building up and um, I think would put United on the map in a global platform as well as Iran. Mm. I still, even though I've been away from the country for 45 years plus, I still have this deep sense of connection yeah. and wanting to help the people because throughout my whole life, I've been helping other people here in this country by motivating, by teaching, to stay away from drugs, stay away from mm -hmm. alcohol, do a work, goal setting workshop and have a goal and dream and teach them how to get there. And I this last four or five years, uh, because of this incident and more, a lot of Iranians have found out who I am. With my broken Farsi, I am mm. doing my best to teach everything I've learned and share the books and the knowledge mm. so they can come up in life. I never believe in a handout, but a hand up. And that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, and you've been, uh, you were very involved over the last year with the uprising after the killing of Massa Amini. You, um, you know, I would say, even say we're playing somewhat of a leadership role, and, and that has been really important to you. And, and I'm sure we'll continue to talk about that as well. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, my heart goes for what the Iranian youth are going through. And we created something called the HFI, the Health Free Iran, because everybody wants to Iran to be free. So. It's very simple, help free run HFI.org mm. if anybody wants to go there to learn more about what we're doing. I absolutely believe in equality. I absolutely believe that there's no difference between men and women anywhere in the world. And uh, I'd be the first one, vote for the first Iranian president who happens to be a female figure mm. because I think it's, it's due. And as you know, and I know, they have shown a lot more guts and balls than most men have around the world. And the younger generations especially. Oh, absolutely. Although I hope, uh, I, I would say, 
the people of Iran, inside Iran, can make those decisions. Those of us outside of Iran support however we can. We support them as much as we can. The next leader of Iran is in Iran already, either growing up or is in prison. And all we have to do is create an environment for them. And, you know, I think anything can be done with negotiation. I mean, when you look at World War II, you know, what happened between U.S. and Germany and U.S. and Korea and U.S. and... Um, the rebuilding, you mean? Japan. I mean, yeah. yeah once yeah. you put... You know, it's just a divorce. We're going through a divorce. It's a really bad, ugly divorce with the Iranian government. And I have no disrespect for religion, whether it's Muslim, whether it's Jewish, whether it's Christian. Mm. But I do believe they need to do what they're good at, run the religion, and let the young people, educated people, run the government for a better economy. Hmm. You know, if they can get in that mentality, they still can make money like Vatican can. They still can have a good living, and maybe millions of dollars. I don't know if that's possible at this point to have them coexist. The same guys anyway, the, the, the current... Uh, like, um, mullah crop, uh, you know. I'm not sure that's going to be. They're going to be. Those guys are going to be content to be around um, running the the, no, the Persian Vatican while, uh, while no, in a new democratic Iran. But yeah, but I get your point. Yeah, that that uh, you can't work with this regime with Eslah Taliban and Usul Garan, not even the opposition. We need to go through a paradigm shift. A paradigm is the way you view the world. And paradigm shift is to look at the world differently. Albert Einstein says, the significant problem you face today cannot be solved at the same level of thinking when you created them. Hmm. I say it again. The significant problem we face today, whether it's in this country or Iran, cannot be solved at the same level of thinking when we created them. So something has to change. Yeah. Something has to give. Yeah. And the new generation has all the answers. The answers. Yeah. They just don't have the horsepower. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Uh, I really hope this movie happens. You know, the story of this incredible father and his spaghetti making son, <laughs> who is a pasta <laughs> chef and really knows how to make little else apparently in the kitchen, but the spaghetti, prove it to the you. spaghetti with the little spaghetti. rainbow trout. <laughs> There's an epilogue to the book. Mm-hmm. I wanted to, I thought of ending the interview this way because I, it's, a, it's a beautiful bookend for your book too. There's an epilogue to your book entitled, My Message, Do Not Delay Joy. Yeah, It kind of speaks for itself, but I thought maybe you could speak to it before we end off. Yeah, I think you said you know, 25 years from now, You'll be more disappointed with the things you didn't do than you did. Don't delay it. Life is a one-way ticket. Before my incident, I should tell you this, Gian, that I had named my motivational speeches like afterburner. You know, that's like a fighter jet. You turn on those afterburner, you take no prisoner, you score your shoulders like a running back, you bulldoze through life and you get what you want, it's yours, and you're mm. gonna grab it. After the incident, I changed that to one-way ticket because that's what all life is about. You never get second chance to repeat yesterday. And you don't know what the future is gonna hold either. You can plan for it. I don't even know we're gonna make it tonight. You know, it could be another 9-11. We could be in the wrong place. Yeah. It could be another terrorist attack. Yeah. All I'm saying is live your life to the fullest. To me, the metaphor is an orange. I want to squeeze every single drop out mm. of that orange. 
which is to me is life. And that's why I say I have no fear of death. Because if I put my head down tonight and don't open my eyes, I'm okay with that. You know, I made lots of goals. I told my kids that, you know, I had 102 items on my goal list and about 85 of them I have checked off. Hmm. The other ones I'm working on. And, you know, if this movie comes out, believe it or not, I have a photo to show you. I have a picture of an, I, I do a lot of visualization, right? Hmm. It's all about visualization, yeah. seniors. So yeah. I have an Oscar in my hand looking at it, smiling. I've had that for years. Hmm. Who knew I'm going to have an incident that might end up into a book and right, possibly into right, a movie and right. make it there? But you know what? You know there is that unspoken thing. I don't believe in that. You, you don't know, believe in chips. That's no, right. no. Whatever people I, can say, do I create my own destiny? Uh, my destiny hasn't been written. I created every single day I get up. I have a choice to be nice or mean. I have a choice to give or take. I love that. And I choose the later. I give. I give or take most earlier. What I love to give because the secret of winning in life to me is giving. More you give. When you're squeezing that orange, every <laughs> single bit out of the orange over top of the spaghetti. <laughs> the one dish that uh, it's a pleasure. It's really, really great to have you here in person. Uh, and um, we actually had a little rook event, and you were part of it and some people got to meet you and and you're such a a, a joy it's a joy when you meet somebody in person and you're exactly you know everything i would expect and and want uh, in terms of uh, your your charisma and your your personality and your kindness and so thank you thank you for being here today making the time and um it's been a it's been a great joy as ever uh, to do an interview with you and i'm so excited for your book uh, for people to read it and for the potential movie as well thanks for this Thanks, Gian. Thanks for having me over. And people know that we did an interview like a couple of years ago. Right then, I set a new goal that one day I'm going to be sitting here talking to you ah. in person. And I put that on my list. So when you said something like this happening, I have the days off. I flew all the way from California to here because I wanted to check that one off too. And uh, it's a pleasure. It's just pleasure to meet you, your friends. The, the way you run the show and the message that you are making available to all the Iranians by interviewing other Iranians. I really appreciate that. Thank you, brother. Thanks, Thanks. for being here. You bet. Captain Behnam. Captain Christopher Chef Behnam. <laughs> uh, thanks again. Thanks again. This is full time for Rook for today. Our website, rookmedia.com, is where you can find uh, all of our previous episodes, all of our information, Everything. It's all there. Rookmedia.com, including how you can support us by becoming a Patreon member. Please check it out. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together. Talented Anahita, Savvy Roham, Smart Pega, Super Parisa, Bearded Omid, Methodical Kabe, Sound Person Louise. Thank you to all of you out there supporting us and sharing our content. Please do subscribe on any or all of our platforms if you haven't done so already. You can find me on Instagram at Giangomeshi. As ever, as my uncle would say, ready? Here we go. Mizunbashi. Bashi.